Hi and welcome to St Ninian's Sermons Podcast. My name's Stuart, I'm the Minister at St Ninian's in Stonehouse, which is in Scotland. We are a local ecumenical partnership between the Church of Scotland and the United Reformed Church and that means we reflect both traditions in our work and worship. So let's listen to our reading for this week and then get on to the sermon. Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 5, reading from verses 21 to 43, and this can be found in page 52 of the Pew Bible. Jesus went back across to the other side of the lake. There at the lakeside, a large crowd gathered around him. Jairus, an official of the local synagogue, arrived, and when he saw Jesus, He threw himself down at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is very sick. Please come and place your hands on her so that she will get well and live. Then Jesus started off with him. So many people were going along with Jesus that they were crowding crowding him from every side. There was a woman who had suffered terribly from severe bleeding for 12 years even though she had been treated by many doctors. She had spent all her money, but instead of getting better, she got worse all the time. She had heard about Jesus, so she came in the crowd behind him, saying to herself, If I just touch his clothes, I will get well. She touched his cloak. Her bleeding stopped at once, and she had the feeling inside herself that she was healed of her trouble. At once, Jesus knew the power had gone out of him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? His disciple answered, You see him, the people are crowding you. Why do you ask who touched you? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. The woman realised what had happened to her, so she came trembling with fear, knelt at his feet and told him the whole truth. Jesus said to her, My daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your trouble. While Jesus was saying this, some of his messengers came from Jairus' house and told him, Your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher any longer? Jesus paid no attention to what they said, but told him, Don't be afraid, only believe. Then he did not let anyone else go on with him, except Peter and James and his brother John. They arrived at Jairus' house, where Jesus saw the confusion and heard all the loud crying and wailing. He went in and he said to them, Why all this confusion? Why are you crying? The child is not dead. She is only sleeping. They started making fun of him, so he put them all out, took the child's father and mother and his three disciples and went into the room where the child was lying. He took her by the hand and said to her, Tathila kum, which means little girl, I tell you to get up. 
She got up at once and started walking around. She was 12 years old. When this happened, they were completely amazed. But Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone. And he said, give her something to eat. Amen. Thanks, Gillian. Um, so I, I just want you to put your hand up quickly to answer a couple of questions. So the first question is, uh, put your hand up if you have mental health. Put your hand up. Okay, and put your hand up if you have physical health. Okay, so that's really interesting um, because more of you put your hand up for having physical health than did for having mental health. So I'm going to assume that half of you don't have minds, but most of you have got a body. So the question, can we go back to the questions again, please, Harris? So it doesn't say mental ill health. It just says mental health. Okay, all of us have minds, so we all have mental health. In the same way, we all have bodies, so we all have physical health. Okay? Yeah? You with me? Okay, so why is it we don't put our hands up for the first one, but we do for the second? Stigma. stigma. That's a good word, stigma. We're going to talk a bit about stigma today. Stigma is, what is stigma? How does stigma work? Being labelled, yep. So we label something, we say, usually that's a negative thing, isn't it? So stigma is almost always negative. So we say that's such and such and we put it over there and we don't really like to talk about it or um, we exclude people maybe that, that fall into that category or experience something or, or whatever it might be. And it's everywhere. Stigma is everywhere. And most of us stigmatize at least one or two groups of people and we don't even know it. Some of it's just an unconscious thing. Now the problem with stigma is that once upon a time stigma was a really positive thing. Okay, so if you live in a tribe in the middle of somewhere, you need to know who's in your tribe and who's not in your tribe. So we don't like them over there because they're not in our tribe and they'll come and attack us. So we need to know that. Or somebody has a particular kind of sickness and we don't know what that is and we don't know what to do with it so we keep them over there so not everybody else gets it. Yeah? So those kinds of things actually protected groups of people at one point. The problem is that we've never really got past that even though we know that we're all the same and we don't really fight with everybody else or that particular kinds of illness actually aren't contagious. We just didn't understand what they were. And we can treat them better now. Some things still are, though. So when you get something that's contagious, you get quarantined, don't you? You get sent off to your bed and, you know, somebody comes in with the oven gloves on and kind of <laughs> feeds you through a slot in the door or something like that. Um, because we don't all want it. We don't all want to get the chicken pox or the measles or, or whatever that is. You should get immunized against those things, though. That would be a good start. Um, that's a whole different sermon. <laughs> um, so, what we're talking about today is this idea of, of well-being. So, what, what do we think well-being is? How would you define well-being? Looking after yourself. John, looking after yourself. Yep. Okay, so looking after yourself. Right, I can't, I'm going to have to come down. I can't hear. 
and other people, right? So well-being is something to do with not just yourself. It's about beyond yourself. Yeah, anymore? Feeling at peace? Feeling at peace? Yeah, anymore? Good food? Yeah, food's really important for well-being, isn't it? And sleep? Your whole self. Okay, so what, what bits of you are we talking about? Mental, physical, what about spiritual? That too? Yeah, so there's lots of parts of us, aren't there? There's lots of bits of us. And sometimes those bits don't work very well. I've got a sore hamstring just now. It's kind of self-inflicted because I did it playing football. But, but on the whole, the playing football bit keeps me well because I get to run around and kick people and shout at them <laughs> and engage in physical exercise. So it's great. Works for me. Yeah? So there are lots of things that we can do that can keep our, ourselves well. So well-being. So is there a slide that's got three words on it, Harris? There you go. Comfortable, happy, and healthy. So something to do with food, sleep, comfort. Um, this guy called Maslow, you've maybe come across him. We drew a triangle um, about needs. It's called the hierarchy of needs. Uh, and at the bottom are things like sec- security, shelter, food, dry, you know, being, being, being safe. And then as it goes up, it gets more to do with other people. And you get to the top and it's got self-actualization. I still don't really know what that means. Um, people who are funny put Wi-Fi at the bottom. Underneath is your kind of ultimate need is free Wi-Fi. Somebody's offered that in the election, apparently. <laughs> Problem solved. Um, so comfortable, happy, and healthy. Are those the same for everybody? And that makes it problematic, doesn't it? Because they're not the same for everybody. You can't just draw a line and say, if you're above this line, then you're well. Or if you're below this line, you're not well. We're, we're, we're all, we all are different. So things that keep some of us well uh, don't keep others well. Who's an introvert? You can't put your hand up if you're an introvert in a crowd of people. What's that about? <laughs> so only one, only one. You must be borderline introvert. Yeah. So... So here, here's a laugh. I'm an introvert. And yet I'm standing up here talking in front of loads of people. Yeah. So, th- so that's one of the things that people misunderstand about what an introvert and an extrovert is. An introvert is not about somebody who's shy and can't stand up and all that kind of stuff. An introvert draws their energy from being alone. Okay? Whereas an extrovert draws their energy from other people. Okay? So you lot tire me out. Okay? That's, that's basically how that works. I like you. I like you a lot, most of you. <laughs> but you tire me out. Okay? So I can only do this for so long and then I have to go home and have a sleep. Right? Or sit in front of the telly and, and read a book or whatever that might be. That's what an introvert is. Whereas an extrovert would be, get really tired by being on their own all the time. They need people. That's what energizes them. And so to look after yourself, you kind of need to know which one you are because you'll keep putting yourselves in positions that tire you out if you don't. And then you wonder why you're shattered all the time. It's not that you don't enjoy the other thing. It just it tires you out. And it, it need, you need to kind of refresh yourself and look after yourself. So why on earth are we talking about well-being in church? Well, we're going to talk about well-being today because it's right at the heart 
of Jesus' concern for people. Okay? Well-being's right in the middle, all of it. So today we heard a story about two healings, right? And on the face of it, they're physical healings, but there's much more to them than that. And so we're going to talk about that today. Apparently, spirituality, I said to Lisa, what about your spiritual health? Are you sitting comfortably? Because this is a long definition. Spirituality is the essence of who we are as human beings. Transcendent, distinguishable from the body, mysterious, and fluid. Characteristics and attributes include hope, meaning and purpose, love, forgiveness, trust, wonder, creativity, and self-expression. A sense of connectedness, the belief and faith in self, in others, and whatever's considered to be the ultimate for an individual. That sounds a lot like what we do here. So maybe, maybe coming to church is good for your health. We'll see if it is. Okay, right, in the story, first slide, Harris. Harris has got loads of work to do today. In the story that we heard, who gets healed? The woman and the little girl. The woman and the do- Is that all? The family of the girl. Anyone else? Okay. So, that's interesting, isn't it? Because two of them get a kind of physical solution, don't they? So the woman gets healed of her bleeding and the little girl gets healed of whatever it is that she's got. We never really know what's wrong with her. Um, But she gets healed. And then the family of the little girl get healed. Okay, so theirs is a a more kind of emotional healing, isn't it? Because they think that she's died and she hasn't. And so there's a whole range of emotion going on for them across the whole kind of thing, isn't there? When Jesus heals somebody, it's almost never just a physical healing. Almost never. He's much more interested in the whole person. And the whole person isn't healed in isolation, are they? Almost always when Jesus heals somebody, there's a lesson in it for the community. So it's really easy to see all these healings as physical healings, where somebody is a one-dimensional character that's defined by what's wrong with them, whether they're blind or they have some kind of lameness or paralysis or they're bleeding or they're ill. And people aren't just the thing that they have, are they? They never are. None of us are. None of us are one-dimensional characters. Even when we don't feel well, we've still got all the other stuff that goes with us. They're all human beings with hopes and dreams and pain and difficulty and just like everybody else. And so to focus on their physical problem ignores, well, it ignores their humanity, I think. It ignores the fact that they're complex people with emotions and feelings. And it ignores the fact that Jesus is profoundly interested in all of them not just the thing that's physically wrong with them. So let's start with Jairus. Yep. Who is he? 
This is a who was paying attention question. Who's Jairus? The girl's father? Is he? We don't know if he is or not. He might be. It doesn't, I, don't, I don't know if it tells us that. What's his job? Leader of the synagogue. Okay, so he's a father and he's the leader of the synagogue. So if he's the leader of the synagogue, that means he's important because synagogues are the center of every town and village. And they're kind of new. By the time Jesus is knocking around, synagogues have only just started to happen. So to be in charge of the synagogue, the leader of the synagogue, means he's a big deal. He has a, a real position of status within the local community. And the other thing that we know about him is he has servants, don't we? So the servants come at the end to say, don't worry, well, don't bother Jesus, not don't worry. Don't bother Jesus because your daughter has died. So he has people who work for him. So he's obviously got wealth as well. So he has kind of pretty high standing in the community. But he works, or he's the leader of the synagogue, and the people in the synagogue didn't really like Jesus, remember? So we're not sure if he was Jesus' friend or not, or whether he was one of the people that was really suspicious of Jesus, because Jesus didn't really fit in to their idea of what a rabbi should be. He's responsible for the moral and religious well-being of the community. That's his job. He's responsible for everybody else's well-being. And in those days, a bit like it was until 400 years ago here, remember that Israel was what we call a theocracy, that they were governed by a religious society. There wasn't a separate state. It was just the church that was in charge. And there are leftover bits of that for us. The bishops of the Church of England still sit in the House of Lords. And the Queen's still crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury. So the church and the state are really linked, but even much more in these days. Even though the Romans were there, the church was still allowed to do its thing. So they lived by those rules as long as they didn't impact on the Romans' rules. Yeah? So they were pretty much in charge. They were the local government, and the Romans just kind of made sure everybody did what they told them. So here's Jairus, this guy with all this status and power and responsibility, throwing himself at Jesus' feet. Exposing himself in front of a whole crowd of people that he needs help in a way that all the other things that are supposed to be able to help him can't help him. I wonder how he must have felt. Because that's the thing we never do with these stories, do we? We don't wonder into them. How would Jairus have felt? Helpless. Desperate. Just helpless and desperate. His daughter's dying. How does he feel? Distraught. I think we all know how he might feel. And that's where he is. And we don't know how long his daughter's been ill, so we don't know how long he's felt like that. But it seems pretty obvious that, you know, he hears that Jesus is coming and he doesn't care anymore about all the other stuff. All he cares about is trying to get his daughter well. And if this guy, Jesus, can do it, then I'm good with that. 
So he throws away all his status, doesn't he? He throws away everything he's got and he kneels at Jesus' feet, which is something you never do when you're important. He throws all of that away in the hope that he might be able to do something to help. So who's the woman? What do we know about her? Next slide, Harris. Wake up. <laughs> he's eating sweeties. It's fine. Who's the woman? What do we know about her? We don't know anything much about her, apart from her condition. And we, we, we talk nicely about that, don't we? So the woman's bleeding. She's not bleeding from her finger. The woman has a gynecological issue. Quite literally. Yeah, that's not what we talk about, though. We just say she's been bleeding for 12 years. Because that's what we do, isn't it? We talk nicely about things. We, we kind of gloss over them and talk around them and all that kind of stuff. Women's troubles. That's what she has. But they're so bad that she's had it for 12 years and she spent loads of money on doctors and she's not getting any better. In fact, she's got worse. So what are the implications of that for her? She's excluded. So one of the things that we probably know in the back of our heads is that every month when a woman had their period, they were sent away from the house. Okay, you weren't allowed to bleed around other people. The, the Jews thought that blood was the, the thing that held the life force of everything. That's why they butcher meat in a kosher fashion. It's to drain the blood from an animal. You can't eat blood. You can't be around blood. It's why the priest and the Levite don't help the guy that's get battered by the side of the road in the Good Samaritan story. Blood's a thing that they don't touch. They don't go near. So you get sent away for a week. It's probably karma as well. <laughs> <laughs> That was a joke. <laughs> and so, you weren't allowed to touch food if you were bleeding. You weren't allowed to, to clean things. You weren't allowed to touch other people. I don't know how anything got done that week. No, I do know, because you had to do everything beforehand and prepare everything for the week so that everybody would still have things to eat and all that kind of stuff. Because you were the only person that did it. This woman's been bleeding for 12 years non-stop. She's not allowed near anybody. She's completely excluded. Completely excluded from her community. Through no fault of her own. It's nothing that she's done. She's not a person of high standing. She's definitely not a man. She's not clean or respectable. In fact, she's almost completely opposite to Jairus, isn't she? She's about as far away from him as you can be. How does she feel? Desperate. Lonely. Exhausted. It's not a good existence that she has, is it? I don't think we could say that she's well in any sense of that word. And to add to that, if she comes out into public and people see her, she'll be stoned to death. So, you know, a bit of jeopardy in it for her, coming to see Jesus. That's how desperate she is. That's how desperate she is. It's a story about stigma, isn't it? Stigma oozes out of every pore of this story. Jesus is stigmatized by the people that Jairus works for. They're deeply suspicious of him. 
The woman's an outcast. She's absolutely stigmatized because she bleeds. And people don't understand what that is and how it works and why it's not the big problem that they think it is. Jairus. Jairus is running a massive risk of being stigmatized for the rest of his life. You went to him. You went to Jesus. You gave up on our side and you went to his side and you're going to have to live with the consequences of that. And the little girl. Imagine being the little girl who died and was brought back to life. What's your life like after that? Everybody knows. The people who heard about Lazarus wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill Lazarus because he was proof that Jesus was something different. This little girl, what do you do with that when you're 12? So again, everybody in the story experiences different kinds of potential stigma or actual stigma. It seems as though well-being is right at the heart of this story, right at the heart of the gospel. Perhaps one of the most famous lines that we know that Jesus said was that he came to give his life in all its fullness. And perhaps one of the biggest mistakes is that we assume that that means everybody's going to be happy all the time. That we won't have any worries if we follow Jesus. And, well, I don't know if you've read the rest of the story, but that's not really how that works out, even for Jesus. You know, we say we model ourselves on him. We try to be like Jesus. Well, Jesus was born in a stable. The people in his hometown tried to throw him off a cliff. He wept for the, his friend Lazarus who died. He couldn't save him at the time. He weeps for Jerusalem because the place has just fallen to bits. He's so anxious when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane that he sweats blood. One of his friends betrays him and hands him over to the authorities to be executed. And the rest of his friends run away. And he gets crucified by the very people that he was trying to help. So if we think that Jesus is promising you an easy life, then I'm sorry. That's not how this works. And well-being's not about being jolly all the time, is it? It's about something bigger than that. It's about something fuller. It's about experiencing all of life. It's about something that's much more spiritual. I think well-being is about being forgiven and forgiving. It's about being restored to relationship when things have gone wrong. It's about having enough and making sure that others do too. It's about giving gifts but also receiving them well, graciously. It's about making time. And space to nurture our minds, our bodies, and our soul. Church is about well-being because Jesus is about well-being. And if it's not, then we're not doing it right. Jairus' daughter gets healed in private, doesn't she? Jesus goes in with a couple of his disciples and he says to her, little girl, get up. He doesn't say you're healed. He doesn't say come back to life. He just says get up. Give her some soup. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. 
He takes away that potential stigma from her, doesn't he? We don't know if she was dead or not. We'll never know. We don't know what was wrong with her. But Jesus removes the potential stigma from that situation. He just says to her, get up. She's only sleeping. The woman gets a completely different experience, doesn't she? She sneaks up. She feels that she's well and she's sneaking away and Jesus says, hold on a minute. Who touched me? And everybody's like, what are you talking about? There's hundreds of people here. What do you mean, who touched me? I did. She gets restored to the community, doesn't she? She's well. Her faith has made her well. And you lot, you lot should have a look at yourselves. That's what's going on in that situation, isn't it? The community is restored. Because if it's not, then she's still in danger. Got some numbers. Don't I, Harris? One in ten young people will experience a mental health problem. And 90% of those who do will experience stigma and discrimination. One in three GP appointments relates to a mental health problem. People living in the most deprived areas are three times more likely to spend time in hospital as a result of mental illness compared to people living in the least deprived areas. But poverty's got nothing to do with it, obviously. Twice as, this, this is a fascinating statistic. Twice as many women as men go to their GP because of depression and anxiety, but the suicide rate for men is three times higher than women. At work, just under half, 48% of people thought that someone, if they had a mental health problem, would probably be unlikely to disclose it because they were scared of losing their job. More than half thought that they might not get promoted or passed over if they disclosed their mental health problem. 45% of people thought that someone wouldn't disclose because they were scared their colleagues, the people they work with, would bully them or harass them or call them names or isolate them. But, at the same time, 46% thought that someone in their work would be supported well by their management if they were unwell. We've got these competing ideas, don't we? We still think that if we're unwell, particularly if we have mental health problems, that we can't talk about that. Because we're scared what other people might say or might think. One of the things I love about this story, I've talked about this before, is that it's next to another story in the Bible. So if you go home and read the first part of that chapter, you'll read a story about Jesus. We heard he came back across the river at the beginning, across the lake, in a boat. Do you know what he was doing on the other side? He met a man called Legion. A man called Legion who described himself as that because he said, we are many. Nowadays we talk about Legion as having some kind of mental health problem. 
And the people who lived around them didn't know what to do with them, so they chained them up in amongst the graves. And he was so strong that he broke the chains. Because that's what happens sometimes when people are unwell. And, and, and we don't know what to do with that. We're, we're scared of people who are unpredictable. Aren't we? We like to know what's going to happen. If people don't do the things they're supposed to do, that becomes a problem. Think about driving. You know, we all have to obey the rules. We all have to do the things we're supposed to do in the way that we're supposed to do them at the time we're supposed to do them. And if somebody steps outside that, we don't know what to do with that. Unless they're really rich, then we just call them eccentric. And yet, we all experience it. We all experience the days where we're in a bad mood and we don't know why. Because we've just not slept enough or because something hurts or because we're hungry or whatever it might be or somebody's winding you up. We all, to degrees, experience those kinds of bad mental health days where you just want to stay in bed. You don't want to go out and you don't want to face the world. But it's really important that we talk about it because it's just as important as our physical health and it's related to how often when you're physically unwell do you feel rotten like feel rotten in your head and in your spirit because you've got a sore foot they're related and Jesus treats them as though they're related Jesus' aim is the well-being of the community to live together with love and respect. That's what it looks like to live out the commandments. That's why when we baptize people, we symbolically drown them, which is a really strange thing to do. But that's what we do. We, we drown them in the water so that they can be reborn into a new life, forgiven for anything that's happened before. That's why the sacrament that Jesus gave us is one of brokenness, not wholeness. Jesus is broken to make us whole. His blood is poured out to restore our lives. So when we're called to go out and tell the world about Jesus, we're, we're called to go out and make things well. To be well. To help each other to be well. Because we do it in the name of the person who created all of us, each and every one of us, and looked at us and said, good, very good. All of us, every single one of us. So be well and help others to be well. There's loads of resources um, on the table and in the hall. It'd be really good if you came this way to go out and had a wee look. Because there might be stuff that you want to take for you or for somebody else. There's stress balls because apparently punching people in the face is frowned upon. <laughs> so take a stress ball, even if that's the only thing you take. Take it home and give it to somebody or sit and squeeze it for a while. But there's lots of information about lots of different things. We all have mental health. This is for you.
Thanks for listening. If you have any comments, questions or thoughts about this week's sermon, then please do get in touch. We create this podcast at anchor.fm where you can leave us a voice message. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We post the audio of the whole service each week on our website. There are details of all of this in the show notes. If you're in the neighbourhood and want to join us in person, we meet for worship every Sunday at 11am. We'd love to see you.